Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted March 22, 2022, titled, Bible Professor Savagely Grades My Fringe Hypothesis, featuring Bart Ehrman. We've recently had Bible scholar Dr. Bart Ehrman on the channel, dissecting and refuting the work of Christian apologists. So it seems only fair to put my own work through the same scrutiny. You want me to mark them? You don't really mark, you just... All right. Put marks on it. Check marks, some question marks, underline some things. Mediocre. I haven't used that one. That's a good one. Are you ready to put on your professor homework grading hat and be as ruthless and brutal to me as possible? My favorite pastime. <laughs> Welcome to Apologia, where normally a former Christian looks at the claims of Christians. But today, we've brought in a world-renowned scholarly former Christian to take a look at the claims of this lesser-known, non-credentialed former Christian. But before we get to my public chastisement and humiliation, you may recall that earlier this month I had a conversation with Christian scholar Dr. Mike Lacona. In anticipation of his upcoming April 9th mega-debate with today's guest, Dr. Ehrman. In case you haven't heard about it already, this is an all-day, seven-hour event where two of the world's most recognized experts will be discussing in detail the evidence for and against the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, Mike and Bart have debated before, but those were the flashy, surface-level, very time-limited, general public events. And one of the frustrations with some debate formats is that you've got lots of things to say, and you, you don't have a chance to say them. This one's going to be more like the end of Rocky Three, where the once opponents, now friends, settle the fight mono e mono once and for all without the rules and the cameras and the hype. Now you just got to prove it to yourself, just right? Myself. No TV, no newspapers, just you and me. Nothing, just you and me. Uh, age before beauty. But instead of fading to black, there will be some cameras and we will get to watch. But don't think of it as an all-day grind. Think of it as a six-hour masterclass taught at the same time by two opposing professors. It's not just going to be hearing me drone on for 40 minutes and hearing him drone on for 40 minutes and hearing him. It's, like, it's not going to be like that. If you sign up, you'll get access forever to take it one session at a time at your own pace. Though if you sign up now for the early bird price, you can get in on one of the best aspects. There will also be questions and answers throughout the day. There may never be anything like this again. So get your discounted ticket at tinyurl.com slash barkdebate, and you'll be helping this channel. So thank you, and I'll see you there. And with that out of the way, Dr. Ehrman, let's take a look at one of my better-known videos called How Christianity Probably Began, No Resurrection Required, and see what you think of my humble hypothesis. Okay, great. Around 30 AD, the Middle East was littered with apocalyptic creatures, including one Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know that it was littered with them. We don't know of hundreds or thousands. It's safe to say that it is littered with people who believed in an apocalyptic message. But in terms of actual preachers in Jesus' day, I forget what you said around the year 30. 
apart from Jesus and John the Baptist, I'm kind of racking my brain here. <laughs> and so I don't know. I mean, we, we certainly know some before. We know some after. And we can assume that there were others. I think most apocalypticists then were like apocalypticists now. You have uh, a lot of fundamentalist Christians who think the world's going to end sometime uh, next month, but you don't have that many fundamentalist preachers on TV. <laughs> uh, so it's a widespread view. One of the groups that we know best supporting this particular point of view were the Essenes, the ones who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they had other communities like that. And they wanted nothing to do with preaching to the masses. They thought, you know, to hell with the masses. <laughs> We're, we, we want to be pure ourselves so that we survive the coming onslaught. And so they weren't out there trying to get converts. So in terms of people out there trying to get converts, I mean, John and Jesus, and there are lots of people who agreed with their message, but I don't know about lots of preachers. So the life of Brian steered me wrong, I guess. Well, life of Brian, there's only three or four of those guys, and they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> This Jesus said or did the wrong things at the wrong time to the wrong people and was crucified on a cross. I think that's absolutely right. I'm dealing with this, with this now in my New Testament class, my introduction to the New Testament, where I'm trying to explain what it has led to Jesus' death. And a lot of my students, of course, they grew up in conservative churches in the South, most of them. And they just assumed that that was the plan, right? Jesus planned to go to Jerusalem and to die. And so he, he wanted to, and he planned to die. And I don't think that's right at all. I think that the last week of his life, Jesus had been preaching this message of the coming destruction in rural areas in, in Galilee. I don't think he had large crowds. The idea that he had many, many thousands of people following him around, that simply can't be true, just historically, culturally. I mean, it just can't be true. But he had, a, he had a following. But I think he decided he wanted to take this message to Jerusalem, to the heart of, heart of Judaism to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, and to proclaim it there when there'd be masses of people there. And their Passover is the time of the year when you'd have the most people from around the world coming to Jerusalem. And so I think he went there in order to preach his message. I think that it was the first time he had ever been in Jerusalem. He and his disciples will look around there saying, look at these buildings. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who would have thought? You know, yeah, well, you yeah. rural folk coming to the big city. But he gets upset with what's happening in the temple because he sees it as a place of prayer and devotion to God. And people are selling sacrificial animals and exchanging money to buy these animals. And he thinks that, that isn't what the temple was there for. I'm not sure how he expected the temple to function, because if people are coming from around the world, you know, if you're coming from Alexandria, Egypt, you can't load up your unblemished lamb on your shoulders and start walking. I mean, how are you supposed, if you don't have animals for sale there, you can't have a temple cult. And so, so I don't know what he, what he thought, but he thought people were making a buck out of religion. And he got upset and he started overturning tables and uh, yelling at people. I don't think the Gospels are accurate that he shut down the temple practice. The Gospel of Mark says he shut the whole thing down. You know, people think that that's plausible, that the temple was about the size of my house, right? And then, no, you can fit 25 American football fields inside the temple precincts. It's a big place. The idea that one guy made, makes a ruckus and shuts it down, yeah, that's not plausible either. But anyway, he, he causes ruckus, and I think that gets him on the bad side of the power players, who are the people who run the temple, the Sadducees. And they're the ones then who end up eventually deciding that he might eventually cause problems, might cause a riot. So they, they turn him over to the Romans for, for punishment. As was a standard Roman practice for the crucified, Jesus' body was thrown into an unmarked grave outside of town. I don't know uh, if that's true. I suspect it's probably true. It's my suspicion. 
The bigger point that I would make is that Romans, so far as we can tell from all of our literary sources that discuss it, and we don't have any archaeological sources that help us at all on this particular question, all of our sources indicate that part of the punishment of crucifixion was to be left on the cross so that the body would decompose, so that people would see what happens to someone who defies Rome. In the ancient world, even more than today, people wanted a decent burial. Of course, today people want a funeral and they want to, you know, they want to be remembered and things. In the ancient world, it was really, really important. You can't read ancient texts without seeing just how crucial this was for people to get a decent burial. And the Romans said, no, you're not getting a decent burial. We're going to let you rot on the cross. And then we'll see how many insurrectionists there are. <laughs> and so, so the idea in the New Testament that Joseph of Arimathea managed to get Jesus off the cross that afternoon, right after he died, and put it into a tomb, I think is completely implausible. The Romans eventually would dispose of a body, and Jesus had no relatives in town to give it to. His disciples had fled. And so I suspect that the Romans just, you know, they had to get rid of him. They probably threw it in a common grave. I, I can't see Romans going out of the way to dig a nice burial plot for him. So that is my view, but I don't think that it's a certainty. I think it's a probability. I think the gospel accounts are highly improbable. This Jesus had some followers while he was alive, but most disappeared into lives never recorded by reliable history, never to be heard from again, all except Simon Peter and possibly John. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. After Jesus' death, of course, in the Gospels, he's raised from the dead and he appears to his disciples. But then the, the story ends there. The book of Acts picks up the story, and in the book of Acts, Jesus spends time with his disciples after he's raised from the dead. It's one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. I don't know if I mentioned this one before to you, but Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus has been raised, and he spends 40 days with his disciples proving that he's been raised from the dead. <laughs> I've never, it's the strangest verse. I mean, how much proofs do you need? I mean, the guy's standing here talking to you. What do you need? And so anyway, but, but the interesting thing about the book of Acts, even though the title that is traditionally given to it is the Acts of the Apostles, there are 12 apostles in the book of Acts, but most of them never do anything. There's no stories about them. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is the main character. John figures somewhat. James gets martyred, but that's the only really story about him. The others just aren't mentioned. I mean, you just there's nothing about them. And there's nothing about them in the writings of Paul. Paul mentions Peter and John. The others he doesn't mention. And so they are lost to history. There are later legends about them that are very, very interesting. They're called the Apocryphal Acts of the Apostles. This is where people get the idea, for example, that Thomas was the missionary to India. Or that Peter got crucified upside down. These are legendary accounts that you find in these. We have five major ones, about five major apostles. These are legendary accounts. So yeah, they do kind of disappear. I don't know what they did. I don't know if they went back to their lives. I don't know if they died the next. I don't know what happened to them, but we don't have any records of them. <laughs> Devastated after the death of his mentor, Peter may have suffered post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences, or PBHE, a well-researched phenomenon documented in papers like these. With PBHE, a lonely, low-mood, fatigued, anxious, bereaved person without history of mental disorder will have an abnormal sensory experience. In about a third of the cases, the individuals will report seeing, hearing, and talking to someone deceased. I agree with that. I don't know if we know what the cause was. If it was because of a psychological phenomenon that happened through his grief, which is one of the explanations, I don't know if that's true. 
I think Peter did have some kind of visionary experience that he interpreted as Jesus appearing to him. And he thought Jesus was no longer dead. I'm pretty sure Peter had that experience. I think that it is impossible for us to psychoanalyze anybody 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's pretty hard to psychoanalyze somebody who's been sitting on your couch once a week for, for three years. I mean, it's very hard to know what's really going on in their heads. It is very common, though, for people to have visionary experiences. And the two most common visionary experiences where you are sure you've seen somebody alive after they died, the two most common instances of that are people who are departed loved ones, especially family members. One out of eight of us will see a departed loved one appear to us and be convinced this person's still alive. It happens to one out of eight Americans. The other one is beloved religious figures, not just Elvis, but but the but the Blessed Virgin Mary shows up all the time. <laughs> I mean, well, very, very extremely well documented. A lot of times, by the way, evangelical scholars will say, well, you know, if Jesus appeared to groups like the 12 or Paul mentions 500 at once, that can't be a hallucination. And I always say, Okay, so you're you're an evangelical Christian. Do you think that the Blessed Virgin Mary really shows up to groups of people? Well, no, of course not. Well, it's well attested that she shows up to groups. So what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, we have eyewitness testimony by lawyers and doctors, and I mean, in big groups. And so you either can have this experience or you can't. But you got you you, you got to play play even on this one. <laughs> Or Peter merely decided that Jesus' message of the coming kingdom was too important and that he would take it upon himself to spread it in the wake of his mentor's death. It's possible. The first account that we had of the historical Jesus by a, a modern historian was actually back in the 1770s. Hermann Samuel Rymaris had a, a view similar to this. He said that what happened was Jesus was preaching that he and the disciples were going to overthrow the Romans and set up this kingdom, this the sovereign state of Israel, where Jesus would be the king and they'd be the co-rulers. And they had a large following and they're all excited about it. They go to Jerusalem and instead Jesus gets crucified. Whoops. And so Peter and the others then decide, look, we've had a good thing going here <laughs> and let's keep it alive. And so what they do is they steal the body and they bury Jesus uh, somewhere else and they claim that he's been raised from the dead. And so they fabricate the story of the resurrection. And so it's not that Peter had a vision or there's no visions involved. It's them just being duplicitous about it. And so that theory has been around since the 1770s. And it's every now raises its head. And of course, it's possible. I mean, it's possible. I mean, it's more, it's more probable than, than somebody was raised from the dead. If you, how many people have been raised from the dead versus how many people have told lies? <laughs> you know, it's like, just in terms of percentages, it's, it's more probable. But I don't think it's the most probable explanation myself. At some point, Jesus' brother James joined the cause, along with one of the Johns. I think that Peter and John were with it, at it all, all the time. James certainly joined the mission. In Galatians, when Paul talks about visiting Peter in Jerusalem, he says that they were the only ones of the apostles that he visited. And that suggests that there were others. And, oh, he mentions John as well. Later, he mentions John. So he knows about Peter, James, and John. Different James, of course, from the one in the gospel. It's the brother of Jesus. But he does say that there were others that he did not visit on that first visit. So there, there would have been other people considered as apostles at that time. And it seems likely they would have been Jesus' disciples. Some of them. Stories about Jesus began to spread not primarily by Peter, but rather through the person-to-person -person evangelism of the day. Neighbors talking to neighbors, merchants talking to customers. These conversations were meant to recruit new followers, not relay an accurate oral history. 
so in the telling, details were expanded upon, embellished, or even invented each time they were recounted. As the movement began a life of its own, Peter the Fisherman was not around to personally affirm or correct the tales being told. Oh yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> that was, that's absolutely true. I have a book that's devoted to this. It is my best book that people haven't read. <laughs> I made a mistake. I didn't kind of give, it a good, give it a good title. The title is called Jesus Before the Gospels. And it is all about that. It's about how the mission spread by word of mouth. And my book is about what happens in oral transmission of tradition. So for that book, it actually is really fun to write. I spent two years not reading anything about the New Testament or about Jesus or the Bible. All of my research was spent studying memory, modern studies of memory, by psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists, where I was interested in the, the psychology of memory how it works. I read study after study after study. I mean, for two years, I was reading these studies. Fantastic. Oh my God, it's great literature. And the sociology of memory, because social groups actually affect how you remember things. And so there are sociologists uh, since the mid 20th century who've shown how memory works within social settings. And of course, the church is a social setting. But then also anthropologists who have studied oral cultures and what happens within oral cultures when traditions get passed along. And what do oral societies think about accurate representation in comparison to what we think about accurate representation? This is literature that every New Testament scholar ought to read, and almost no one has, including scholars who write books about memory and books about oral tradition. It's pathetic when you read some of these books, and some of them by very fine scholars. Richard Balcom wrote a book about memory and oral tradition about Jesus, very, very big book. Look at his index and see how much he's read about memory. Are you kidding me? You read a few books and then you, I mean, you don't, you just, and Craig Keener, I mean, you write these big books and you haven't even, you, you haven't read the stuff. And I just think it's too bad. I, I, it's the one book I wrote that I regret people haven't read because I think it's really, it's one of the most things important to have ever written, but uh, you know, so it goes. <laughs> Can't have everything. So I agree. I agree with the statement completely. And it's not really probable that Peter would have gone around correcting everyone who had a wrong conception. What are people thinking exactly? You know, people say, like, if they're eyewitnesses alive, how would anybody stretch the truth? What are you even, what are you thinking about? Have you ever had somebody tell a story about you? Like, the next day? You have no way of controlling what people say about you. If Peter's living in Jerusalem and somebody in Ephesus is telling a story about Jesus, what's Peter supposed to do about that? And how could he possibly know there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are telling stories about Jesus? Are the apostles going around fact-checking? Like, it's crazy what people say. It all, I don't know why people just don't think about reality sometimes. But yeah, no, there's no way Peter was going around correcting people anywhere, <laughs> even in Jerusalem. Even the guy next door, he has no control of the guy next door saying. <laughs> a few years later, a Pharisee named Saul was traveling around persecuting these new Christians, burying the moral guilt of his actions under the certainty that he was doing the will of God. But on his way to Damascus, he suffered a psychotic break, possibly some form of guilt-induced post-traumatic stress, manifesting in a vision of the allegedly resurrected leader of the group he was harming. So affected by this experience, Saul changed his name to Paul and began recruiting for Christianity and writing letters to churches outlining his theology. Okay, this one's a little bit more complicated. For one thing, uh, Saul never did change his name to Paul. And the only place he's named Saul in the New Testament is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it's not that he changed his name from Saul to Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name or his Aramaic name. 
and Paul is his Greek name. And it's not that he converts and then he becomes Paul, because even after he converts in Acts, he's called Saul. <laughs> and so it's, it's just they're two different names. I don't know if he converted on the way to Damascus or not. The book of Acts says so. Paul, when describing his conversion, doesn't say that. In the book of Acts, there are three accounts of Paul's conversion, three accounts in chapter 9, 22, and 26. And in these three accounts, you have differences among them, flat out contradictions about what happened. They are the account where you get the idea of him being blinded by the light and on the road to Damascus and then having this conversion experience. And, and people have tried to psychoanalyze what it was all about. Some people have talked about some kind of traumatic stress. Some people have thought that it was an epileptic fit. There are a wide range of views. Paul himself does not describe it in those dramatic terms. He just says that God revealed his son to me. And later he says that he has seen Jesus. He, he, in a couple of places, he says that he actually saw Jesus. My guess is that Paul had a vision of Jesus. I certainly think he had a, some kind of vision that he interpreted to be Jesus. Again, I don't think we can psychoanalyze him to know, but I think he had a vision. And so it's interesting because you know, I actually think that we can say with relative certainty that Peter did have a vision. I think we can say with relative certainty that Paul had a vision. I think Mary Magdalene must have had a vision because in these early accounts, it's always Mary Magdalene who's discovering the tomb. And I think it must go back to the idea that Mary, one of his you know, like they weren't intimate. You know, it's not like she was his closest disciple or anything like that. They didn't have a baby. It's nothing like that. It's just like she's one of these women hanging out with her. There were several. And she she appears to have had a vision of him that explains why you have these accounts tracing it back to her. But, you know, the, kind of the historical irony of that is that it means that probably the Christian faith is based on the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Paul, Peter, and John once met in person to swap ideas. But in the end, they didn't actually see eye to eye on things. We have two accounts of it. In the book of Acts, they saw eye to eye. In Paul's writing, Paul had to twist their arms. And what he convinced them of was that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be followers of Jesus. He took that to mean that there was complete equality between Jews and Gentiles in the Christian church. James and somewhat Peter thought that, in fact, there had to be a distinction. The Jews still had to remain Jews, and Gentiles had, could remain Gentiles, but they shouldn't mix together in the church, especially during their meals, because it would keep Jews from following their law. They couldn't keep kosher food laws. So they were arguing for separation, and Paul thought that was pure hypocrisy. Uh, he thought Jews and Gentiles were equal in Christ. So they appear to have agreed that Gentiles could be followers of Jesus without keeping the law. Or they might have been reluctant in agreeing to that, but they agreed to it finally. But they didn't agree on the social implications of that. After several decades, a variety of Greek-speaking people who never met Jesus, or even Peter, took it upon themselves to begin writing down some of the stories that had circulated about Jesus and the sayings attributed to him. These written fragments were later compiled into what we now call Gospels including some links to Old Testament themes, some explanations about how the guy people knew from Nazareth could also be from Bethlehem, and activities they imagined post-resurrection Jesus did. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a little bit hard to know whether Mark had written predecessors or not. Mark was a Greek who didn't know Jesus and had never been in Israel, probably. And I don't know whether he had accounts that had been written or if he's just basing it on oral stories. Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources. They do seem to have had another written source for many of their sayings of Jesus, but we don't know if that source is based on earlier written sources. So basically, I, I mean, I agree with that. The Gospels are based on a Greek accounts by other people living later, but I don't know how much they're dependent on yet earlier written accounts. 
a great many Gospels were written. Each author who compiled a new version expanded upon Jesus' power and his divinity, going from a preacher who did miracles only under very low profile to the co-creator of the universe who performed publicly at the drop of a hat, to someone who killed and resurrected people out of spite, to a powerful resurrected military man with an anthropomorphic giant talking cross as his sidekick. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's true there are a lot of Gospels. We don't know how many. We don't know of any in the first century besides the ones we have. After that, you start getting Gospels in the second, third, and fourth centuries. I have a collection of 40 of them in a, a book called The Other Gospels. that I translated these with a colleague of mine, Slaco Placia. A lot of them are just fragments of Gospels. We don't have the whole thing, but we do have some whole things. I don't think it's the case that you can trace a, a direct line, a, like a linear development, that he gets more and more and more and more as over time. Because some of them actually portray him as less miraculous over time. And so it really depends on the perspective and the theology of the author. But certainly within the canonical Gospels, Jesus goes from being, you know, this, this suffering Messiah in the Gospel of Mark to being the Word of God who created the universe has now become a human being. So there's definitely some kinds of progression there, but it's not a consistent kind of progression. It's more kind of probably up and down over the years. On occasion, some of the early Christians were troublemakers and suffered consequences because of their disruptive behavior. But generally... Early Christians had a very live-and-let-live existence, and only relatively infrequently were bothered because of their ideology, though unfortunately it did happen sometimes. They were accepting of people, kind to the poor and widows, and so grew in numbers. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Of course, the later Christians, and sometimes Christians in the period would say, were being massacred by the thousands, but uh, it doesn't appear to be true historically. And so we don't. We have very limited record of actually of persecutions up until really. It's not until the middle of the third century that Christianity is declared illegal, and you don't have an official persecution by a Roman emperor until the middle of the third century. And really, the worst time was a ten-year period in the early fourth century, the Great Persecution. Otherwise, most Christians just got on with life like everyone else. Sometimes there'd be some opposition, just like there, you know, there are minority groups that get opposed violently. So that did happen. It did happen, but. They weren't down there in the catacombs hiding out, <laughs> drawing sides of the fish so they could recognize each other. That's, that isn't what, what happened. Centuries later, in 303 AD, Christianity did become illegal in Rome for a while. But ten years later, it was given legal protection and soon became the Roman Empire's first official religion which is when it really took off into the institution we know today. Uh, pretty much. So I have a book on this called The Triumph of Christianity that tries to explain how that happened, how you start with this little band of nobodies who speak Aramaic and can't read anything to becoming the official religion of the empire and then taking over the West, <laughs> how that happened. Uh, and it's, it's a terrifically interesting story. I guess you'd have to say it first became illegal probably around 257 or so, not during the Great Persecution. Diocletian did issue several edicts against the Christians that led to the Great Persecution starting in 303. The Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the year 312, and then he made Christianity a legal religion, and he made all religions legal, complete religious freedom in 313. That ended the persecution. I think that Christianity was taking over the empire at the time. And in my book, Triumph of Christianity, I tried to show not only how it happened, but like how quickly it happened. And my view is it would have happened without Constantine. I think the empire would have converted without Constantine. It was about half Christian by the end of the 4th century, and then it's just, you know, it's just rapidly taking over. In short, to account for the established history of Christianity, we need only a single disciple to claim Jesus rose, 
a later convert who hallucinated the same, and an urban legend to spread. So that's the end. Do you think you could give me a letter grade of how well I did? I think you did extremely well. I mean, this kind of historical insight is rare. <laughs> usually people, usually what people do, of course, they either like endorse the Bible as the inspired word of God and it's all true, or you get the other side that sacks everything and says, yeah, none of that ever, ever happened at all. <laughs> and so like a serious historical engagement is really what we need. So I think these questions are really right on target. And I think you've done extremely well. Wow. That's high praise. Thank you so much. And especially for the points where I will need to refine in the future. And if you haven't signed up yet for your online access to the Bart Ehrman, Dr. Mike Lacona resurrection debate on April 9th, go to tinyurl.com slash debate right now to get your early bird pricing for what is sure to be a both sides masterclass on this important and controversial topic. And while we wait for that, tap on the Apologia versus Jesus Resurrection playlist on screen now to get yourself in the Easter mood, and I'll see you over there. Later. Later.